You're preaching to the choir. You used that cliche before? It's kind of a well-known one. We tell somebody that they are preaching to the choir when we are already on board with what he or she is saying. Listen, you're preaching to the choir. You know, in a way, each Sunday here together is kind of that. (laughs) You're preaching to the choir. You could probably say, Steve, listen, we're on the same page already. We know you're preaching to the choir. It makes me think of one, uh, one pastor who's one of his sons kind of imitated his dad of how he gives a sermon and wanted to do a shorter version. He just got up in front of his family at the dinner table and said, you're all sinners. Jesus died for you and rose again. Let's go home. <laughs> now you're preaching to the choir. You know, it, to be clear, I mean, we still need reminders. We are forgetful people. We need encouragement. We are often discouraged people. I bring up the cliche, you're preaching to the choir, because this past week, I did not preach to the choir. A family outside of our church invited me to preach at a funeral of one of their loved ones who passed away. And I, in thinking and reflecting on it, I just thought that preaching to this different audience is good. It's good for a couple of reasons. It's good because, first, it's just a unique opportunity, isn't it? Just We have this cultural norm of even people who don't believe in Jesus inviting somebody to come preach about Jesus to them at a time when God might cause them to ask really big questions of life. It's a really unique opportunity. God can use it. But it's also good for me not to preach to the choir all the time. It's good for how God uses it in me. You know, when I preach at a funeral, and unfortunately, I've had to do several. I've gotten the opportunity to do several. And I look out at the audience and see the room full of faces, and I, it becomes clear to me as I read these faces and sense their body language that I am not preaching to the choir. And that's just a little side note that I have eyes and notice uh, facial expressions and body language. So hopefully that doesn't make you self-conscious as you listen to the sermon. But uh, yeah, I have eyes. Anyway... I look at a room full of faces during the funeral, and I can tell that not everybody is on the same page as me. I see a few nods of agreement. Others still are kind of hard to read, just sort of a blank stare. And others yet are not hard to read at all. (laughs) They disengage entirely. Preaching to a different audience at a funeral, not preaching to the choir, reminds me that I take for granted that the gospel we believe is strange and offensive and uncomfortable to our natural selves. In other words, I got, to dis- I got to see a tangible display of the passage we are in this morning in real life, that the word of the cross is folly to the world. In a world that thinks it has everything figured out, why do we proclaim this foolish weak, antiquated, and offensive message of the cross of Jesus. Why do we do it? Well, that's the question that Paul seeks to answer in this portion of 1 Corinthians. Uh, If you have it, it's in your bulletin, or if you have your own Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You can follow along as I read. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. So, why do we preach the weak and foolish message of Jesus' cross? Well, because the cross is, as we'll see, God's plan, not ours. The cross is foolish to everyone, but can save anyone. Those are the two big answers we'll cover during our time. Verses, we'll look at verses 18 to 21 and verses 22 to 25 in turn. Kind of the main point of this passage that Paul is trying to get across is that the cross of Jesus Christ comes with an unexpected irony. What seems weak is actually strong. What seems foolish is actually wise. So why do we preach this weak and foolish message of the cross? First big answer, looking at verses 18 to 21, is that because the cross is God's plan, not ours. God's plan, not ours. God is the source. God is the designer, not us. And friends, that is good news for several reasons, as we will see. So let's just notice what's going on in these verses, verses 18 to 21. We'll walk through these verse by verse. So like verse 10, verse 18 is Paul's way of introducing a new line of thought. This is his heading or his thesis statement. He just talked about the divisions that uh, were throughout the Corinthian church, divisions over loyalties to certain teachers who were more eloquent or better speakers than others. Now, we remember that the Corinthians valued presentation over substance. They valued the messenger over the message. Paul's already combated those wrong and misplaced values, but he continues his response here. He continues his response in verse 18 by saying that the message of Jesus' cross doesn't even fit the category of eloquent, rhetorical, and fancy speech doesn't fit the category. Because no matter how much you wrap the cross in eloquent speech, it is an offensive, uncomfortable message about a crucified Messiah. As Paul puts it, the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Now we're desensitized to this a little bit. Our steeples, our necklaces, our artwork, even our tattoos. You don't have to tell me if you have one. <laughs> All these and more desensitize us to the fact that the image of a cross was unsettling in the first century when Jesus hung on the cross. It was very unsettling. 
It was the most humiliating form of punishment in the ancient world. Indeed, the Roman philosopher Cicero famously said that the very word cross should be far removed not only from a Roman person's uh, being, but also from a Roman person's thoughts, his eyes, his ears. They should never think about it. They should never speak it. One author is helpful to give maybe a modern-day comparison of the shock that people in the first century would receive at, the cru- at a crucifixion or at the image of a cross. It'd be like the shock we would receive if we saw somebody who was wearing a ring that was stamped with an image of a mushroom cloud that was, that was bombed over the city of Hiroshima. It would be the shock we might receive if we walked into a building, maybe even a church, and saw paintings of mass graves at Auschwitz. The cross and crucifixions were unsettling in the first century. This wasn't something that you talked about in polite society. So no wonder then why the average person in Paul's time saw Christ's crucifixion as something foolish. Why would a proclaimed Messiah of the world endure the most humiliating method of execution possible? More on that soon. But back then, just as now, the word of the cross is folly, Paul says, to those who are perishing. Now, the New Testament normally uses that word perishing in the context of a person's final state. So perhaps we could put it something in our own words by saying, of course the cross seems foolish to those who can't see where they are headed if we are left to ourselves. Of course it seems foolish. The cross of Christ is not a humanly wise or popular message, but, Paul says, we believe it, we proclaim it, because it is God's power. It is God's power. To us who are being saved, that is, to those whose salvation will one day be fully realized when we are at home in heaven with God face to face, to us, the cross of Jesus is power, not folly. Now, in contrast to the cross being folly, we might expect Paul to say here that the cross is wisdom. And he'll say that soon enough. But Paul's choice of saying that the cross is power, I think it's a deliberate one. It's deliberate to say power here instead of wisdom. One commentator, Don Carson, he points out that Paul deliberately chooses to say that the cross is God's power because he wants to remind the Corinthian Christians that the cross of Jesus is not just some good advice. It's not just some good philosophy. No, the cross of Jesus is God's power for salvation. God's power to act decisively to save us and deliver us from our sin from which we could not deliver ourselves. The cross is God's power. Now we pull back the camera in verse 18 and just notice what Paul is up to in the context of what we've read so far in 1 Corinthians. Remember that the Corinthians had divisions in their church and it reflected the divisions throughout their society. And we're no different. People haven't changed. We are ranked with divisions as well. We have politics. We have factions. We have niche markets. We have movements. You name it. And here, in verse 18, it's like Paul cuts through all of that and shows us the division that really matters. 
the division that really matters. What do you believe about Jesus Christ and his cross? Is it folly or is it power? The cross, this is kind of Paul, Paul's headline, Paul setting the stage for his presentation. The cross being God's power leads Paul to discuss the cross being God's plan. God's plan. So notice here in verse 19, the cross of Jesus Christ is not some ad hoc, ready, shoot, aim, ordeal. It was purposeful. It was planned. Paul says here in verse 19, it was always God's plan to humble the so-called wisdom of the world. That was always God's plan. So in verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29. We read it earlier on in our time together. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Remember, like we said, Isaiah 29 predicts earlier on in that chapter that enemies would besiege the city of Jerusalem, but that God would deliver the city from harm. Isaiah also says in this chapter that the so-called prophets of the day those whose hearts were far from God, but who claimed to be so-called experts in the fields of knowledge and wisdom, Isaiah said that those guys wouldn't be able to tell what God was up to. Those guys wouldn't be able to understand what God was doing. God would prevent them from understanding. God was determined to frustrate the wisdom of those who claimed to be wise in themselves. Paul's saying the same thing goes on today. Even think of our day, just short, shortly, think of our day. Some have observed that our day is the, is the day of the death of the expertise. The death of the expert is our time and age. We expect our experts to be infallible, and we've witnessed so-called experts, especially recently in the fields of politics, in the fields of medicine, get things wrong, and we are upset on the one hand, it'd be amazing for a self-proclaimed expert in a certain field, maybe in politics or in medicine, in response to a question, it would be amazing for, that, for him or her to say, you know what, I don't know, but I'm going to look into it. Wouldn't that, be ama- wouldn't that be amazing just for an expert to say, I don't know? <laughs> but unfortunately, the pendulum has swung to the other side so that now all of us are experts. If you watch a documentary, if you watch news that only confirms how you already thought, if you read an article, if you post a picture, presto, you're an expert. Just like in Isaiah's time, as in Paul's time, as in our time, God has planned to humble the so-called wisdom of this world so that this world cannot boast about its wisdom so that none of us can boast about our own wisdom in the face of God. Notice how Paul continues in verse 20. He asks, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now, real quickly, in the Corinthian culture, the wise man was the one who had an appealing worldview. He's the one who can make sense of life and death and of all the universe. The scribe was the expert in the law of God. There would be a Jewish population in the city of Corinth. They'd be familiar with this. So this person would have a deep knowledge of biblical heritage, of biblical tradition. 
And then the debater of this age was the person who the Corinthians were drawn toward, right? They were the ones who were the gifted and trained speakers and orators. So Paul's just asking them here in these rapid-fire questions. He asks, which one of these groups, which one of them, which one of these groups came up with the cross of Christ? Which one of these groups wrote it down, came it up, designed the scheme? Which one? Did the wisdom of the Corinthian age, or even the wisdom of our own age, lead us to be reconciled to God, our maker? No, of course not. Do our cultural and political values, even the ones that we like, lead us to Christ crucified? Do they lead us to that message? Or do they lead us to something more vague and a little more selfish? One commentator asked, do the popular religious sentiments of today, those such as felt needs and discovering yourself, do those lead us to think what it cost Almighty God to pursue rebellious human beings and win them to himself? No. All the wisdom of the world, whether in the Corinthian world or in our world, has not given us peace with God, has not given us knowledge of God. That's why G.K. Chesterton wrote this. He said, Some say that men are mostly fools. Christianity, with its surer and more reverent realism, says that we are all fools. Just keep going through these verses one by one. We're on the verse 21. Verse 21 says that this was God's plan all along. Again, it repeats that. This was God's plan. It's not just that we can't know God and have peace with God through any of our so-called wisdom or ability. It's that God actually intended it to be that way. God planned that. I wonder if you caught that how, does that, how does that sit with you? How does that sit with you? That God intended, planned for us not to know him through our own efforts and wisdom. That's how he planned it. Now, if, if that doesn't sit well with you, imagine if it was that way. Imagine if God's plan and intention was for us to discover him in our own wisdom and morality and, and achievement. Imagine if God somehow spoke to us and saying, you're on your own. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Figure it out. Where would that leave us? We'd be hopeless. And at best, let's just say for the sake of argument, at best, only the most educated, only the brightest, only the richest, only the most attractive, the most squeaky clean would have any kind of shot at this. And even if they could make it, even if the best and brightest could get knowledge and peace with God on their own ability and their own wisdom, then you know what would happen? They would have legitimate reason to elevate themselves over everybody else. It'd be their glory. Instead, God's plan is different. Instead, Paul says, God was pleased to save those who believe through the folly of what we preach. The message of the cross is not impressive to the world. And Paul says, yeah, that's the point. Every religious or philosophical outlook on life that we come up with places us at the center. 
it makes us the hero of the story. You walk into Barnes and Noble, I don't know if they're open or not, if Barnes and Noble's still a thing, but if you walk into Barnes and Noble, you will find the self-help section. You will not find the God-help section. The problem is we are not the hero. We cannot save ourselves. And the good news, though, the good news of the cross is that God saves. God saves through Jesus. And this is a big reason why the cross is foolish and offensive to the world. It's because it's an assault on our ego. Right? It's because in the cross, God is telling us, this is what I have to do to rescue your sinful, helpless self. This is what I have to do. Now, if God is the one who saves and not us, this is good news, not just because we can't save ourselves, but also because it means that there's hope for the rest of us. There's hope not just for the best and brightest. There is hope for the dirtiest and the lowest. Those who believe, described in verse 21, are those who've stopped believing in their own wisdom and have started believing in God's wisdom, God's wisdom displayed in the cross. They are those who cling not to the wisdom of this world. They cling to their crucified and risen Savior. Jesus is their confidence. Jesus is their hope. Friends, the way to know God and have peace with God is through his Son and through Jesus' work for sinners on the cross. Friend, if you have not taken hold of this by faith, we implore you, do so today. So here's a summary so far, just where we've been, verses 18 to 21. God's plan, not ours. God's amazing plan to glorify himself was to save those who can't save themselves through a way that none of us would have come up with on our own. Of course, we never would have come up with this. We never would have planned this because we never saw our need for it. And even if we did see our need for it, we would plan a way for knowledge and peace with God to be our achievement, not something that we receive. And we could never achieve it anyway. So two quick points of application, just on, uh, to close out this point. God's plan, not ours. Quick po- two quick points of application. First, if the cross is folly to our natural selves, then, brothers and sisters, expect and be okay when others misunderstand you and consider you strange for being a Christian. Expect that. Be okay with it. I've talked to one church member recently. She's not here, so I, I think I can share. Um, it's not bad. It's sweet. It's a, it's a sweet. She's sweet. She told me that some in her family uh, who, who do not confess Christ as Lord and Savior, some in her family think that she is weird for being a Christian. And she asked me what I thought about that. And I told her that while we don't go out of our way to be strange, it's a good thing that they recognize something different about her. Because if, it, if they didn't, that would mean she'd be blending in too much. You know, we Christians in America feel increasingly misunderstood. We feel increasingly marginalized, maybe increasingly considered as strange. Well, brothers and sisters, when hasn't it been that way? When has the world seen Christians in any other way? 
After all, we follow Jesus, the one who went before us and was misunderstood and who was considered strange, who was pinned to a tree and physically rose from the dead. This isn't irrational, but friends, what we believe is otherworldly stuff. We should recognize that. A little dose of self-awareness is good. We should know that others will see us and what we believe as strange. And that's okay. We were at that same point as them. And if we didn't recognize it, and if they didn't recognize that about us, we wouldn't be representing the gospel very well. We realize that the world considers the gospel strange and foolish, but we are not ashamed, as our call to worship says, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Why should we be embarrassed by it? Second point of application, in line of this first point, be faithful to proclaim. So the first one was, be okay with others misunderstanding you, considering you strange for being a Christian. The second application, be, be faithful to proclaim. Notice in verse 21, the word that Paul uses for preach, that word there, that's, that word is connected to the work of a herald. Now, Herald is not just the name of an angel. Uh, herald is an actual position, a job. Paul understands that the Christian's task is not like the task of the wise man or the debater of this age. That is, all the people that the Corinthians were drawn toward. Those figures searched for whatever way possible to persuade their audience. They were marketers who sought to package their messages to make it as irresistible as possible. That was their goal. Paul's highest goal was something different. Paul was a herald, not a marketer. A herald's task is to communicate the king's message accurately and effectively. If a herald gets the message wrong or changes the message, then he is a bad herald. So the application is, be faithful to the message. Be a good herald. We are heralds, not marketers. Our highest goal is to get the message right so that people understand it. Our highest goal is not to make the message palatable. If that's not our goal and we take on the persona of a marketer, we will invariably become bad heralds. Because listen, if we want to make the gospel irresistible to the world, then friends, we are going to have to change some of the parts of the gospel because some of the parts of the gospel are foolish and offensive to the world. If we want to make the gospel irresistible, friends, then we are going to have to go soft on what we say about sin. We're going to have to avoid saying that it was our high-handed rebellion, not just our brokenness and weakness, that put Jesus on the cross. If we want to make the gospel palatable and irresistible, do the work of a marketer and not a herald, we will have to go soft on the exclusivity of Christ. We'll have to avoid saying that there is no other way to be forgiven by God except through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. And by the way, just the beef with exclusivity, by the way, real quick, saying that there is no exclusive religion is itself an exclusive claim. Because when you say that, you're saying yours is the only way 
that is right, that is the right way of thinking about religion. All claims by nature are exclusive. There's more we can say. If we want to make the gospel palatable and irresistible, do the work of a marketer, we will have to go soft on what we say about our inability. We'll have to avoid saying that there are really no good people. We'll have to avoid saying that we cannot make ourselves good. We'll have to avoid saying that no amount of good old-fashioned values, health and prosperity, and political victories gets us anywhere with being reconciled to God. If we want to make the gospel palatable, irresistible, we'll have to go soft on the truth that Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross. We'll have to avoid saying that on the cross he bore the hell we deserved. We'll have to avoid saying this because that would be a judgment against us. Friends, we are heralds, not marketers. Now, we don't go out of our way to be jerks as heralds. We want to present this in a way that is kind, that is engaging in a way that people understand. But if we are faithful to this message, we should know that this message has elements that are offensive to our natural hearts. And friends, simply being faithful to the gospel message, doing the good work of a herald, if we're to do that, guys, then we need to know how to explain the gospel. We just need to. If somebody asks you what the gospel is, could you tell them? If we're to do the faithful work of a herald, we should embrace the gospel ourselves. Friends, do you not just know the gospel? Do you embrace it? If we're going to do the work of a herald, just think about it. Simply being faithful to the gospel message. Friends, that is freeing. That's freeing. Think about this. It is not on our cleverness. It's not on our insightfulness. It's not on our creativity to bring people to a saving knowledge of God. That's a load we can never bear. God does this. We are just faithful to proclaim. Simply being faithful to the gospel, doing the work of a herald, think about this. This is what brings the most glory to God in Christian ministry, just being a herald. Now, I don't want to be cynical. There's a but coming. I don't want to be cynical, but I observe that there is a sort of standard plug-and-play formula for quote-unquote success among American evangelical churches. That it goes something like this. There are exceptions to the rule, of course, but um, it would be wise to probably plant in an upper-middle-class suburb where there's enough money to fund programs and amenities. It'd be wise to have plenty of people who are just like you, who have your same interests, who have the same age group, who have the same predominant ethnicity. It would be wise to have a good vision statement, uh, effective graphic design, effective kind of packaging. It would be wise to have messages with life and marriage and family strategies at the center of them rather than Christ crucified at the center of them. This formula is based largely on our own wisdom. It's based largely on entrepreneurial principles. Some are really open about that too. Now the problem is that the world 
can explain the quote-unquote success that comes from that strategy. The world can easily explain that. Now, don't, don't hear me saying that we shouldn't plan, that we shouldn't pursue excellence in ministry. No. But we depend not on our wisdom to market and package. We depend on the foolishness of the cross. We are heralds. If we are simply faithful to proclaim the cross of Jesus and live it out, then the only explanation for growth and unity is God's power, not our own, giving the most glory to God. Why do we preach this foolish message of the cross? Big reason number two. Here we're looking at verses 22 to 25. Because while the cross of Jesus is foolish to everyone, it can save anyone. While the cross of Jesus is foolish to everyone, it can save anyone. Now, back in verse 18, Paul started off by saying that the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. Here in verse 22, Paul gets specific. He talks about actual groups of people. So you see, we start off, he says the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. As if you're familiar with the gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that all the time the Jewish people approached Jesus during his earthly ministry demanding signs from Jesus. We read an example of one earlier from Matthew 12. Just says simply, the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Plain enough, right there. Now again, just to, to nuance a little bit, some may have a good heart in seeking a display of Jesus' power. Just the previous chapter in the book of Matthew, we see John the Baptist, who wound up in prison, and he gets a message to Jesus and, and his disciples, and John writes to Jesus saying, hey, are you really the Messiah? But John did not say, Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, then break me out of prison. No, John wants to know, Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, then I can get through anything. So the heart behind demanding signs that Paul talks about and that Jesus encountered over and over again, it's something different than John the Baptist. It's a heart that makes demands on God to bend to your will. It's saying to God, God, I will follow you if you do this. If you heal me, if you fix my marriage, if you get me out of financial constraints, if you answer all of my questions, friends, if you have an if, there will always be another if. Always. This approach is, a, is coming to God not on his terms, but coming to God on our terms. One commentator puts it like this. This is telling God that this is what you have to do if you are to have the privilege of my company. But in response to all this, demanding a sign, we see in this passage from Matthew, Jesus actually gave a sign. We read Jesus gave the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so Jesus would be killed and then in the grave for three days and nights and then rose again. Friends, what greater sign is there than someone who said they would be killed and rise again and then they were actually killed and rose again? But yet, Paul says, 
The Jewish people stumbled over the cross. He says it was a stumbling block. Why? This is an amazing sign. Why? Some Old Testament background might help us some. If you know Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, says that whoever is hung on a tree is cursed. Whoever is hung on a tree is cursed. So in many of the Jewish people's minds, they, they thought, how could the Messiah, this glorious, this pure person, be cursed? What does that say about him? A crucified Messiah is a contradiction in terms. It's an affront to God being majestic and strong and mighty. Paul gets into the specifics. The Jewish people consider the cross foolishness, and the Greeks did as well. So here, the cross is not foolishness just to the Jewish people, but also to the Greeks and more broadly, even all the Gentiles. Paul says, verse 22, that the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now, this might surprise us. Why is this a bad thing, seeking after wisdom? You know your Old Testament, especially the book of Proverbs? It tells us literally to do just that, seek wisdom. So what's wrong? Well, like we've been saying, the wisdom that the Greeks sought after is different from God's wisdom. The wisdom they sought after was the wisdom of human ability. It's the wisdom that had the goal to make themselves look impressive. Now, to them... To the Greco-Roman world in the city of Corinth, to laud as a hero, someone who was crucified, that was not impressive. It was foolish. After all, what honor or status can you get from binding yourself to someone who was crucified? So Paul's saying, verse 22, Everybody around us thinks we are crazy. Everybody around us thinks that this message of the cross is ludicrous, that it's dumb, that it's foolish. And yet Paul again is adamant. He says, we preach Christ crucified. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jewish people, the Greek people had it wrong. And the Jewish people demanded a sign of power. They're befuddled and offended by a sign of weakness and defeat at the cross. But ironically, Jesus' weakness and defeat on the cross is actually the greatest display of power and victory. No, the cross is not God splitting the Red Sea and conquering a physical enemy. No, the cross is God splitting the temple veil and conquering the enemies of sin, the grave, and Satan. They were right. The cross was a curse, even the greatest curse imaginable. But the cross that Jesus, the curse that Jesus bore on the cross was not cursed for his own sin. It was for the sins of his people, both Jews and Greeks, amazingly enough. And to confirm and vindicate this, God rose him from the dead. Friends, even the Greeks got this wrong. The Greeks sought wisdom and consider the cross as foolishness. I learned something interesting this week. I learned something interesting about this word for foolishness. It, the word is moria, foolishness, moria. I don't know if you're leading to the same place I did. It's kind of the word we get for moron. 
commentator Robert Stein observes that the Bible uses this word in connection and to refer to the popular character of the fool, often in the Old Testament. Now, the fool, by definition, was one who was oblivious to his self-destructive behavior. So here, what Paul is saying is really, really brilliant. Jesus is actually a wise fool. What appears to be self-destructive behavior on the cross was actually intended to save others. So what the world dismisses is how God brings salvation to the world. Amazing. God's so-called foolishness is wiser than the world's so-called wisdom. Now, if we preach Christ crucified to everybody, but everybody finds a way to find it foolish, then how do the Corinthian Christians come to believe in that this was God's wisdom and power? What made the difference? It was not because of how wise they were. We've already covered that in verse 21. It's because God called them. God called them. Unless God does this, they would have never listened. Unless God called them, they would have never believed. Paul's going to talk about that more in our next section. Friends, just in closing, we should know what are a couple of outcomes of the foolish and weak message God has called us to believe. Friends, first just think of how this message of the cross should land on a church that was ranked with division, full of division. Like we've already said, in God's eyes, there is no distinction. Whether you're Jewish or whether you're Greek, you're a fool. And you are not wise in yourself. But now God has opened our eyes to see, for us to see how he saves foolish and weak people through a foolish and weak message. See, in our wisdom, we drive wedges between each other. And dying for us on the cross, Christ not only saves us, but brings us into a new family where we are one, where old wedges are are put away, where what matters most is not whether you are Jewish or Greek, but what matters most is whether or not you are in Christ. This is something that our so-called wisdom could never do. And our so-called wisdom, we have just a bent to elevate ourselves above others for whatever reason we can grab that's close. Again, commentator Robert Stein says this, the result of God's wisdom seems quite outlandish. Gentiles respond to the gospel of a crucified Jewish Messiah, preached by a battered and unimpressive Jewish apostle, creating a community in which Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, stand together as equals before God. This divided church in Corinth, they stopped prizing and preaching the main message that saves them and the main message that's meant to unite them. Last outcome. You know, Jesus' so-called foolish way of the cross is giving up himself for the sake of others. This is what we cling to. This is how we live. This is our confidence. But friends, now this is also our way of life. This is our way of life. The way of the cross is the way that says it is more blessed 
to give than to receive. The way of the cross is willing to endure slander and mockery and even persecution as we live for Christ and for others. The way of the cross sets aside our preferences for caring for others, to maintain unity. Oh, we are able to do all of this, to walk in the way of the cross, because the cross has set us free, fully, finally, forever. Jesus paid all that we owe. Our place with God's secure. We don't have to capture it for our own anymore. We're free, free to serve, free to live this way. Why do we preach this foolish message of the cross? Well, because we are people of the cross. It's how God saved us. Those who had no power to save themselves. It's how God changed us. Those who had no wisdom of our own to know God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the cross. We say hallelujah for the cross. What good we've done could never save. Our debts too great for deeds to pay. But you, our Savior, made a way. Hallelujah for the cross. Lord, we would never have designed this plan. It's yours. God, help us remain humble. Help us be faithful heralds. Just be faithful to proclaim this message. And God, help us be people of the cross. To walk in how Jesus walked, giving ourselves to others. Thank you, Lord. Work fruit through your word and how it's received this morning that we may carry it beyond this place. In Jesus' name, amen.